Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Crude oil contracts are higher by nearly 2% on the NYMEX right now. Here to tell us more about the oil complex is Stephen Shork. He is the president of the Shork Group, joining us from Villanova, Pennsylvania. Stephen Shork, always a pleasure. Let's begin with news today about Saudi Arabia curbing output last month. This is according to OPEC delegates and also the trade dispute that now has become political between Saudi Arabia and Canada. What does this mean for oil prices? Well, if we're left just to the seasonality of it all, Pim, uh, right now, oil demand in the United States, if it has not peaked for the year, uh, it shall peak over the next couple of months, excuse me, couple of weeks, that is to say. So we typically see the highest demand for crude oil at the peak of the summer when demand for gasoline is at its strongest. So as we transition into August, now, of course, we look ahead into September. We're not going to the shore. We're not going to the Poconos anymore. Uh, the kids are back at school. So demand for gas gasoline falls, and then demand for crude oil falls precipitously as we go into the fall maintenance season. Now, remember, the refinery is the only guy in the world that actually buys crude oil to use it, and their consumption of crude oil drops tremendously in the months of September and October. And based on the published uh, schedules for maintenance coming this fall, this maintenance season will be extraordinarily high. So we can expect to see a sharp drop-off in demand for crude oil in the months ahead. So what does this mean for price? Well, intuitively, if you're at the peak of the season and we're already well off prices, that is, are already well off their highs, and we're only looking at weakening demand in the months ahead, that would imply lower prices in the nearby future. Okay, so does this mean that the best trade is to play on investors' fears of increased prices? That's going the other way. That's the contrary bet. Make sure that you could stick it to an investor to pay 69 to $70 a barrel when the price, based on what you just described, looks like it's going to fall. Right, exactly. So we did. We came out of the worst, worst of it, and and I think what, what on investors' minds, what was really not focused on was the loss of Canadian crude oil. Uh, the market seemed to be really focused, of course, on the situation in Iran, the situation in Venezuela, the situation in Libya. Uh, but we had a major upgrader, a, a production plant in Calgary that went down for an unplanned outage back in the late spring, right as we were going into the peak demand season for oil. And keep in mind, demand for oil, demand for gasoline in the United States has never been stronger. And yet we lost a key supplier of that oil at the start of the season. And hence, we did have a sharp run up in price. But the market has endured that right now. So prices at this level, from a fundamental, from a season seasonality standpoint, you would expect to see lower prices, a, soft, a softening in prices, as it were. Uh, but clearly, with the headlines, the uh, reported assassination attempt, 
down in Venezuela. Of course, the situation between this White House and Tehran, the situation in um, in Libya, all plays into fear. And when you have in fear in the market, that fear gets priced in as a premium into the market. So, so there there is that still continued overhang in this market. Okay, so if you're a driver and you're looking to put uh, gasoline or fuel in your automobile, should you expect prices to remain stable or at least lower going into the fall? Well, going into the fall, we have to keep in mind, and the investor listener here has to keep in mind that come September 15th, the rules begin to change with the type of gasoline that we put into our cars. And then that, that transitions again in the month of October and once again in November as we transition from a summer-grade gasoline to, quote-unquote, a winter-grade gasoline. Now, winter-grade gasoline, given the amount of chemical feedstocks that go into manufacture it, they're plentiful. So to manufacture winter-grade gasoline is a cheaper proposition. Position. So inherently, we are going to see lower oil prices, we're going to see gasoline prices because of the transition for the types of gasoline that are going into the refinery, uh, or coming out of the refinery, I should say. So that said, Tim, I would expect to see lower prices, because let's keep in mind, uh, as you said at the beginning of the summer, when demand was at all-time highs, we lost uh, access to a lot of crude oil. We, we've withstood that. Now we're going into a weak demand uh, part of the year when we're manufacturing a cheaper gasoline going into that uh, um, uh, time frame. So I think at worst, expect a, a prices, uh, you know, a, a slow, steady decline. But, but certainly I would expect this, you're going to see a decline. That's just economically a truth that we'll see over the next couple of months. All right. I want you to put uh, oil uh, to the side for and gasoline to the side. I want you to talk about liquefied natural gas and the potential yes. Chinese tariffs on LNG imports. Yeah, that that was a big surprise. Uh, of course, uh, China has identified U.S. energy imports uh, as tariffs, but they they had left out LNG. And I say that as a surprise, and I think it is catching the market a little bit off guard given that China is in a massive transition to wean itself off of coal uh, onto gas. And it's been a major buyer of LNG cargoes uh, over the past year. Uh, some estimates now have China as the world's largest buyer of LNG. Uh, so th this was a surprise. I am skeptical. Uh, China's making this threat. I am skeptical uh, because we are, we are coming out of the summer, which means we're going into the fall and we're going into the peak demand season and for Chinese gas consumption, the winter. And the flexibility that U.S. LNG has, it, uh, right. the, the cargoes uh, can easily go into China. And this is what we saw uh, last year. And when you have excess demand right. in the Chinese market, it was U.S. LNG that fit that gap because of its flexibility. We got to so, leave it there. Uh, Stephen Shork is the president of the Shork Group. He's based in Villanova, Pennsylvania. He's talking crude and liquefied natural gas.
Right now, let's talk about CBS and the decline in the value of CBS shares since the accusations of sexual harassment against uh, CBS uh, chief executive Les Moonves. Here to help us understand what's going on is Tuna Amobi. He is the senior media and entertainment analyst for CFR Research. Tuna, always a pleasure. Uh, I was looking at the price of CBS stock and uh, all right, 52 bucks a share. But the 13% decline since the revelation of these accusations against Les Moonves, do you believe that that is really what is hurting the stock? Uh, Pim, first off, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, absolutely. I think, um, I think it does create uh, an overhang on the stock, uh, which is kind of why we downgraded the shares um, from a buy to a hold. Um, it's a little bit disappointing, Pim, that the company chose to uh, conduct business as usual on the last earnings call, as if uh, wishing that the matter of the ongoing investigation will, will just go away. Uh, but there is unquestionably a cloud of overhang as a result of this board investigation, and uh, we think that as long as that cloud uh, does not get resolved in a substantive manner, uh, that investors should uh, tread cautiously, even as the company has uh, demonstrated continued strong fundamentals here. So we are cautiously, um, you know, waiting for the uh, uh, kind of the uh, substance. And, and based on that, we just think it's uh, it, it's prudent to, to not add to current positions. Okay, but let me press you a little bit. If indeed the company is doing well, we got the results last week. They're over-the-top business, exceeding estimates. They're adding subscribers at an accelerated rate. Their retransmission fees are also higher. Why wouldn't this be a good opportunity to buy a stock that's trading at 52 that maybe just about, let's say, the middle of July was trading nearly $60 a share? The simple answer, Pim, is that uh, Less Movers is an integral part of the investment thesis here. And there's a lot of investors that we speak to uh, that actually bought into CBS uh, precisely because Les and his team have demonstrated uh, the vision to execute on that core strategy that you just alluded to. Uh, growth in um, you know non-traditional revenue streams, whether it's uh, uh, streaming or content licensing um, over the top, uh, you know things of that nature, retransmission. Uh, so I think uh, the fundamentals definitely um, are very healthy, as you have alluded to. But right now, I think uh, there's a real uh, some likelihood that some of the shareholder value. Uh, that Les Moves has uh, created over the last decade. Some of that could be uh, eroded uh, in the event that he could, uh, you know, potentially be found, uh, uh, you know, somewhat complicit or even if uh, sh should he leave. And remember, there's still the issue of the potential merger uh, with Viacom, which uh, National Amusements is, is pushing. Uh, and the litigation that is pending in that regard also creates an overhang. And there's a lot of CBS investors who would not like to see that merger happen. And to the extent that, you know, Les, uh, who is the chief opponent of that merger, to the extent that he's displaced, I think, uh, bringing together the two companies could also raise some questions in the minds of CBS investors as to whether that is, in fact, something that will uh, grow shareholder value over the long term. Well, Tuna, I'm glad you mentioned Viacom. They're going to be reporting their results on Thursday before the market opens. What do you expect? 
So uh, CEO uh, Robert Backish, uh, I think he's on, on, the, on a good path, right? So he's articulated his vision to focus on the flagship brands, and we are actually encouraged um, by, by some of the strides that have been made under his tenure. Um, you know, we're seeing some stabilization in the ratings at Nickelodeon and, and, and MTV and VH1. Uh, there's still some challenges there, to be sure. Uh, at the Paramount Studio, I think we actually have been encouraged by a stemming of, of the, uh, the, the challenges that they've faced over the last several years where they've underperformed uh, the other Hollywood studios. So I think there is also progress there in terms of the turnaround strategy. Uh, but we do expect, uh, to your question, that there's still some underlying issues with uh, maintaining some operating consistency on the advertising side. Uh, the company is still somewhat, I think, disadvantaged in this highly consolidated landscape where I think you see more, uh, the bigger, the scale becomes even more important, uh, which is why I think the uh, merger with CBS is arguably much more crucial for Viacom compared to CBS. Let's talk about another merger. Tell us about Disney and 21st Century Fox. We get Disney results tomorrow after the close. The shares right now hitting a new 52-week high. The stock is up 7.5% this year. Correct. Uh, we are still uh, very bullish on the shares of Disney. Uh, we think the, uh, the, the uh, deal with Fox, which just got approved by shareholders recently, I think that sets the company up very nicely to execute on its uh, direct-to-consumer strategy, uh, as well as the advantages of scale. But I think, um, you know, the, the elephant in the room here is going to be how uh, potentially, uh, you know, Fox reacts to the uh, bid for, for Sky, which, as you know, Comcast had loved a much higher bid, and I think uh, Fox has on, until Thursday to, uh, to bid that offer. I, I, I do believe that there is a very good chance that Fox can come back with a higher offer for, uh, for Sky, uh, uh, which could uh, escalate the bidding war. And remember, now that Disney has an agreement in place, there's also the likelihood we think that Disney could actually uh, leapfrog and make a full bid for Sky. So there's all kinds of moving parts here uh, that will determine how you know, the, the Sky uh, issue gets resolved. And I think that's probably going to uh, uh, overshadow the, uh, the results of, of, of these companies that, that's coming up in the next couple of days or so. Well, uh, 21st Century Fox reports on Wednesday, uh, just uh, after the, the market closes. What do you think Comcast's uh, strategic response will be if they are not successful, as it looks as though they will not be for 21st Century Fox? Give me about 30 Well, seconds. I wouldn't rule them out. As a matter of fact, Tim, I would not even say that they would not be successful, because I think they made it pretty clear when they backed out of the... Um, you know, of the chase for Fox, that um, Sky is now their sole focus. And I do believe there's a real chance that they could come back yet with a higher offer should Disney and or Fox decide to, uh, to top Cam Comcast offer on the table. I mean, Sky is an extremely strategic asset. We still think that Sky is probably, on balance, a better match for Comcast uh, uh, rather than Disney. Uh, but I think expect both companies to uh, go all out because I think the, the Sky assets are very unique. Um, Sky is as much as, as, a, as a bona fide content provider as it is a, a satellite TV distributor. And the, 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 the uh, most recent uh, pact that they just right. signed with the Premier League was uh, very, very compelling, uh, which makes it uh, all the more valuable uh, asset. Thanks very much. Tuna Amobi, Senior Media Entertainment Analyst at CFRA Research.
What do the companies Compona, Arbor, How- Arbor Homes, and Westwood Meats and Bound have in common? They're all companies that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has acquired this year. And while the names may not be familiar, that's probably because they were not multi-billion dollar deals. So here to tell us what Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are going to do with $111 billion worth of cash our own Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Tara, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Uh, and I just want to note to follow uh, Tara on Twitter, just to go to at Tara Lash, L-A-C-H. All right, Tara Lash, what, what kind of acquisition does Warren Buffett need to make in order to really move the needle at Berkshire Hathaway? Well, their cash is over $100 billion, which has been the case for a while now. I mean, obviously, they need a big deal. I think the challenge has been you know, the same over the past year, which is that everything's very expensive compared to what a Warren Buffett would like to pay for deals. And I don't know if he just bites the bullet and does something outside of a valuation he's comfortable with. I don't know if that makes sense. Or does he finally give in and think about doing uh, buybacks, which I think is something investors are becoming more open to as well, probably more so than the idea that's been floated around of them paying a one-time dividend. Now, as I noted in in the introduction, I mean, and I was kind of kidding because, I mean, I had never heard of half of these companies, but uh, it's not as if they've been completely out of the acquisition business, right? I mean, because they have bought uh, Braun Group. Mm-hmm. They've also uh, made an offer for about 50% of Riverside Capital, uh, Global Aerospace, Premium Medical Protection, uh, Medical Liability Mutual Insurance. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are a, they're making a lot of acquisitions. They're just tiny. Right. And I mean, there was a, a, a large deal um, last year when they bought a stake in Flying J, Pilot Flying J, the Correct. stop company, which I think is a, a really great deal for Berkeley share, but uh, down the road, they'll be able to buy more of it. Um, It wasn't, you know, a $50 billion transaction that's really going to move the needle on the cash, but I think it was something that really matched with their strategy. So they're definitely active. You know, he has a lot of people working for him that are tasked with looking for deals. And I think there's just a lot of pressure right now, not just because the cash is so high, but because, you know, Buffett is turning 88 later later this month, and you don't want to leave his successor with the challenge of having all this cash and also trying to make investors comfortable with someone other than Buffett running the company. So I think he can make it a little bit easier for the next in line if he can do something to chip away at that cash with a deal that investors really like. Well, just to note that uh, Flying uh, J acquisition, Pilot uh, Flying J acquisition, that was only for about 40% of the company. Right, exactly. So they have the option to buy more later on. But yeah, they don't, you know, it's not completely in the Berkshire house. Uh, It wasn't, you know, the kind of deal that people were looking for, though I think it was a good one. Do you get the sense that investors in Berkshire Hathaway are eager for Warren Buffett to spend the money, or are they content to just sit and wait for a big market downturn and see an opportunity evolve? It depends who you ask. I've talked to a few different shareholders in recent weeks and months about this, and I think a lot of them are really patient. And then some other ones, some of the younger ones that are looking ahead at you know who's going to be running the company, I think they're looking at it from the standpoint that I was saying earlier that you know, it would be really hard for someone other than Buffett to do a deal of that size. You know, he gets these deal sweeteners because of who he is and because the honor it's it's sort of perceived to be to be acquired by Berkshire. And I don't know if it's going to be that easy for his successor to, to maintain that. So I think from that standpoint, it makes sense to, to do as much as they can now with that money. 
But it's not as if Berkshire Hathaway is not being opportunistic in actually selling stakes right. as well. For example, that Phillips 66 divestiture. Right, which some people were also puzzled by that. Um, I was interested to see what they were going to do with Kraft Heinz. I think it's getting to the point where I really don't understand why Warren Buffett likes the stock so much. Um, I don't know why Berkshire is still in it. I think that him stepping away from the board, while that was mostly due to him wanting to reduce his travel commitments, I think it could be a precursor to them backing off of Kraft Heinz. I, I just don't think it, it never really did fit the kind of Berkshire investment that we're used to seeing, but he always was able to justify in, it. In what way? Is it because it didn't give them total control? Well, I think also just the strategy, you know, Kraft Heinz is run by 3G, a private equity firm. They're really good at cutting costs and boosting profits. Uh, Kraft Heinz became very easily one of the most profitable companies in the food space. But I think, you know, that's kind of maxing out now. They're not really investing for long-term growth, even though they keep talking about it. And I think, you know, Warren Buffett looks long-term. And when you look at Kraft Heinz, I don't know what that long-term picture could is. Could it be a soup? Could it be Campbell? Right. I mean, they could buy Campbell's soup. I don't know that that does much for them. Sure, they could fire a lot of Campbell's people, cut a lot of costs. Um, sure, they could make the business leaner, but that's a temporary boost. I think, you know, long-term, Campbell's soup does not give them international exposure. It's in almost entirely North America. And then, you know, on top of it, it's not a growing business by any means. So I don't know how this really helps them in the long run. Is there a particular industry that you think that Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are focused on? I think they do like the consumer staples space. I think companies with really strong brand names, um, you know, Costco comes up a lot because Costco has this uh, membership that's almost functions like a float. And it's that kind of brand, really strong brand equity that you could see uh, being something durable. Almost like the premium that is paid in an insurance industry. Exactly. Yeah. Very similar. So I think he could be drawn to that business. Um, companies like Nike have come up, you know, uh, Deer always comes up. A Big few... stake in Apple. Apple. Yes. <laughs> Um, a lot of industrial companies uh, fit with the Berkshire strategy. But of course, you know, as we see with Apple, his investing lieutenants could take them a different direction. I mean, it seems like they are open to tech or consumer electronics. So I think there's a lot out there. It's just price is the sticking point. Well, right now, the shares of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, the A shares, uh, they are up about five and a half percent so far this year. So I have to wait and see what happens. Much appreciated. Tara LaChapelle, our uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering deals, and that means Berkshire Hathaway, as many other companies. And also, once again, you can follow Tara on Twitter. Go ahead. I'm going to let you say it. <laughs> At Tara Lash. The last name's too long to fit in a Twitter handle. <laughs> it is. T-A-R-A-L-A-C-H. I'm Pim Fox. If you believe technology skills will land you a job with regular pay increases, well, you're going to have to listen to Harley Lipman, the chief executive and the founder of Genesis 10. This is one of the nation's largest IT services and staffing firms, and he joins us now. Harley Lipman, thanks very much for being with us. So if you believe that having those tech skills means you're going to have a great job with regular pay increases, should you rethink that? No, not at all, actually. Um, even though wages have been flat for quite a while, especially because big corporations have been able to leverage volume discounts, discounts when they work with vendors, and vendors provide a large number of IT professionals, things are going to change. They're actually, wages have been bottomed out, and they're only going to go up. 
Well, when you say wages have bottomed out, why have wages in the tech sector been under pressure? Well, uh, companies have been able to keep pressure on, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, on vendors who provide IT professionals. They've been able to keep pressure on wages because they could leverage volume business. If you're doing business with a Fortune 100 company and you're providing them with IT professionals, they will leverage that. They'll say, well, if you have hundreds of people here, we want a really big discount. So they, they keep the wages low and they keep the rates low. And vendors have been seeing margin compression. So business for vendors has, has been as good as it used to be. But now wages are going to go up because they're seeing turnover. They need the skills, and especially in emerging technologies. You know, if you talk about artificial intelligence, we're really going to see the results of that probably in about five years from now. But until then, you're going to need IT professionals to build out the software to support artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence, simply stated, is the ability to do things on computers that humans were previously doing. So what kinds of specific technology skills are going to be in demand? Well, clearly, um, cybersecurity is high up on the list, analytics, um, things like DevOps. These are technical terms, but there are a lot of skills. Uh, learning Java, learning Python, uh, that is going to be in high demand. So things will just change. Even if you learn something in technology and a new emerging one comes about, you could still learn it. So there's always going to be a need for trained IT professionals. Just keep your eye on where the emerging trends are going. Well, you mentioned artificial intelligence. Are there specific types of programming skills that are going to be necessary? Yes, uh, Java and Python. So for people who are taking computer classes or studying computer science, uh, I'm sure they know that. But those are the two areas to focus on, learning Python and Java. There's a big future there. What about the use of H-1B visas, the ability to attract foreign talent in the United States in technology? Well, the companies have been using H-1B visas because that has allowed them to keep wages at a low level. But now uh, companies are not taking people with H-1B visas because of the uncertainty. They don't know if the visas will be renewed. They don't know if they could get someone a visa. Uh, it's a serious issue now. So we see this among our clients where they want uh, companies to replace the H-1B visa people because they don't want them to stay on their premises, get involved in really critical projects, and then their visas are coming up for renewal and they have to go back to their home country and they can't get back because uh, the U.S. government will not renew the visas. Huge uncertainty. And, if you, and, in, and in technology, you need consistency and stability above all, predictability, because you have deadlines, you have to get work done, you can't depend on someone who may or may not have to go back to their home country. Now, the kinds of uh, skills that you describe, software engineering, application development, as well as app support and quality assurance, where are people getting the skills in order to do that? Are they getting that from university programs, or is that something that they have to then go out and get more specialized consideration? A little bit of both. You know, after the, uh, the, the big recession of 2008, uh, American companies, by and large, cut training. So people now have to get that on their own. Uh, there's a big gap now. 
And that presents real opportunity for people who really want to get into the tech sector because if they could get some training, and there are vendors that provide it, like we do at Genesis 10, we provide training, and we provide domestic outsourcing, so that's where people could get trained. So if they could get that training on their own a little bit or through a vendor like Genesis 10, then they could take that and leverage that, and they could get very good jobs at, at companies. Now, you mentioned artificial intelligence. What about robotics? Is that also an area that should be trained for now? Oh, yeah. That's the future, of course. Robotics, AI, that, that's the super hot area, but it's not there yet. So a lot of people are, are getting caught up in this. And while it, it's important to learn the skills, as I mentioned earlier, learning Java, learning Python will put you in a strong position for artificial intelligence. Uh, to your good point, it's also for robotics. Very, it's basically the same thing. Now, there's a geographic element to this as well, is there not? You're headquartered in New York. You have operations in Miami Beach. Is there a geographical tilt towards the coast in terms of where the talent is? Not at all. All over the United States and all over the world, technology moves at such speed that it's needed everywhere. It's needed in Des Moines, Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Dallas, Atlanta. There's no one hub that is using it. No one else is. The world is indeed flat in that way. So it doesn't matter really where you are. And that's the beauty of technology, like, like you know, uh, cell phones, emails, text, WhatsApp. You could be anywhere in the world and communicate. It's the same thing with these technology skills. But aren't costs related to geographic issues? Yes, you're quite right on that. So a lot of companies are looking to have more work done in lower cost areas in the United States, the Midwest in particular, where it's also rich in talent. But at the same time, there are companies that have headquarters in major cities like New York City, Atlanta, Dallas, and they need people there. So it's a bit of a blend. You'll have some work being done onshore, but off-site, as we say, and you'll have work being done at the corporate headquarters, which will be in the big cities. You'll have both. Now, Harley, just give you about 20 seconds here. Employers around the United States, they posted more than 300,000 tech jobs. This is in the month of May, for example. But yet they only filled under 9,000 of those jobs. What's the biggest lack of tech-savvy jobs that are available? What's the biggest vacuum here it's 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 interesting i know it's a it's a bit odd isn't it but you know given that there's a shortage and you know the unemployment rate continues to go down to record levels and they're not hiring basically because employers are looking for everything if they want 15 things that someone has and you present them with with 12 or 13 they may not take them they'll send the work offshore it's just kind of an easy but a false uh, reaction and decision on their part. It's, Got it. It'll catch up to them. Thanks very much. Harley Lipman is the chief executive and the founder of Genesis 10. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.